This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. This week it's time to rise up. It's episode 233 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and this week going to be going back to Marvel Rising. You heard me talk about the trailer a couple weeks ago. This week, we're going to be talking to Senior Vice President of Animation and Family Entertainment for Marvel, Court Lane, who also happens to be the executive producer for the Marvel Rising Secret Warriors movie that's going to be on Disney XD and on Disney Channel on September the 30th. So we'll get to talk to him about Marvel Rising in general and how cool the initiative is and what's going on with this movie that's going to be coming up on September the 30th. Also, you know, Fall TV is... More than here at this point, my spoiler-filled reviews of Manifest and The Gifted are coming up. And then next week, it's our big DC TV special. So a whole bunch to get to, and we're going to start with comics. What we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Matt Kent, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Be careful dragging out that long box, or if you're firing up the tablet or the laptop, whatever you're reading on this week, it's time for What We're Reading, and a book that I've been looking forward to ever since it was announced at DC and DC 2018 in January. It's Heroes in Crisis number one from DC Comics, written, of course, by Tom King, Clay Mann doing the art, Tameo Mori on the colors, and Clayton Cowles on the letters. Now, basically... This is, remember, about heroes that have gone that are going through trauma in their day-to-day lives as heroes and what they go through. And now what we do get to see in this book is we get to see a lot of Harley Quinn and Booster Gold, and specifically together. And now we also get to find out what Sanctuary is and what's actually helping these heroes with their trauma. It's very, very interesting. As a matter of fact, one of the heroes describes what it is towards the end of the book, and I think it's a very interesting combination. Again, these are spoiler-free reviews, so I'm not really going to go through all that. I'm sure you've read it or are going to read it anyway, so I want to get your fresh take on that instead of, you know, telling you going in what it was. Now, we actually get to see these, like, short introductory interviews. You know, if you've ever seen something like this before where it starts with, the, you know, here's who I am and here's why I'm here sort of thing. We get to see that with several heroes and basically talking about why they're at Sanctuary in the first place. And it's really interesting because each one opens in a different way to show you how everyone's issues are different. And there are some familiar names that are a part of this as well. Some that you might not know as well, though. Now, what we also get to see here are some shocking deaths. And I mean shocking. I mean, it's involved with at least two very recognizable names that are a part of this, one of which specifically, I was really surprised. I mean, I did not expect to see at least one of these characters right away just die in this book. And it just goes to show you that nobody's really safe in Heroes in Crisis. And if that's the groundwork that's going to be 
laid down for this, then it's going to be really, really interesting going forward. We also get to find out that the confrontation between Booster and Harley is more than just some random act of violence, and it's more than just, you know, a villain meets a hero and the battle ensues sort of thing. So that's one of the biggest kind of hooks of this first issue to me was, okay, so this isn't just some random event. It means something, and you should know that because this is a Tom King book. Nothing's just going to be left out there and be done for no reason. There's an absolute reason for this. And there's a very real and very human moment during this during the investigation of what's happened at Sanctuary with the Trinity, when Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman all converge and find out what the heck's going on here. And it plays out during the investigation, and it really, I thought, unveiled some hidden trauma with them as well, and a reason why they might need the counseling just as much as some of these other heroes do. It was a very interesting interaction. I wonder if you're going to get catch the same vibe from it that I did when I saw it. The story itself, though, is really brilliantly crafted. And it just feels so very, very real and genuine. And it's almost like a an afterthought of, well, yes, this is comics and it's a work of fiction, but at the same time, you never really stop to think about it. And you get to see the images, too, that, that have been teased for this, like the, the death of Superman and Batman's back being broken by Bane or a couple of images that are used to kind of promote this. Is You never really think about or, or wanted to think about it maybe what the effects of that were on these heroes and how heroes go through things like that all the time. I think there was one, one line that I will spoil just a little bit from the book, and I'll paraphrase it, is that one of the heroes says, you know, we're kind of fighting all the time. And think about what that would be like to be literally fighting all the time. It's not granted for the greater good, but at the same time, you know, fighting all the time, there, there's got to be some trauma that's attached to that. I will say, if you loved what Tom King did with Mr. Miracle and how that story was presented, you're going to love this too. And I'm going to tell you right now, Clay Mann takes his work to another level in this first issue. And I mean, Clay Mann's good anyway, but the emotion means everything in this book. And this would not work without the artist and the team, the art team itself. I won't just give this to Clay. I'll give this to everyone involved. This is not going to work if you aren't able to show those subtle details. And you really, really got to see that shine through here. I knew that I would love this book. I was not disappointed. This is a pull for me. If you haven't read it yet, you will not be disappointed that much, I can tell you. After something that heavy, though, I needed to go with something a little bit lighter for the next book this week. Or at least I thought it was going to be lighter. Maybe not. It's Faith Dreamside number 1 from Valiant. And it's Jody Hauser on the writing, MJ Kim on the art, the great Jordi Belair on the colors, and Dave Sharp on the letters. Now, a good cover, by the way, by Marguerite Savage. Don't want to forget about that. Now, if you're not kind of following Faith's story, she's kind of fallen from grace after being framed for murder and having the public kind of turned against her. And, you know, spoiler alert, she didn't do it, but the public certainly thinks she did. And there's a very clever ruse by the faithless that are trying to frame her and all this other stuff, and it's a whole deal. So now basically she's hiding. Her alter ego is Summer Smith, which it's kind of like a fun but random name at the same time, which is very in keeping with the Faith story. Now, while she's waiting for the right time to resurface, you know that she's not really just going to rest on her laurels, right? You know that at some point... She's not going to stay hidden, and she's going to have to try and be a hero. And that's that should be no spoiler that that's part of what happens here. Now, she kind of finds herself in a really tough spot. And then something else happens that leads us to what really looks like it's going to be the main part of this story. It's like one, one action ends up leading to another action that lands us into what the story is going to be. And that's basically that a young hero really needs her help. But it's... Turns out to not really be quite as simple as the young girl thought it might be. And I mean, I mean, we're talking about a young girl here. She's not necessarily going to know everything. So things get a little bit complicated and it's not quite clear what's going on exactly. I mean, we know what she's struggling with, but we don't know if it's really that simple. But we do get to find out why Dr. Mirage is on the cover of this issue. And trust me, when you saw that, if you're like, how does this make sense? Well, it makes sense. Once you read the book. Now, aside from that, 
There were a couple of very good messages in this book that I thought were really, really cool. And it wasn't preachy. It was very subtle and it was very real. And I really, really appreciated that. I thought I thought that it was very cool. And Faith may be one of the most genuine and down-to-earth heroes in comics right now. And I think that that is something that gets understated in, in a time where we've got thousands of books on the shelves. If you're looking for like a role model type hero, she's probably it. And somebody that, I guess it's because she's very likable, but she also seems very approachable. And in a fictional character, I think that that's important, especially if you are if you want someone younger to start reading comics as well, to somebody that you can really latch on to and say, you know, I really like her. I'd like to find out more about her. And that's kind of what Faith is. She's just very likable. And this, this book specifically has definitely made me a Faith fan. I wasn't a huge fan of some of the other books, and maybe that's because they're not targeted to me, and I understand that, but I also understood the appeal and why I always recommended Faith to other readers because it, just because it might not necessarily be my thing, I, I understand what's going on and why this is a good book for somebody else. But this one specifically for me made me a fan. So this is a poll for me as well, and I'm glad that I finally found a Faith book that I can latch on to because I always have liked the character. And now this one I think is going to get me really, really interested. And I think there's going to be some very interesting and fun interactions with Dr. Mirage once that starts to come in as well. That's going to do it for what we're reading this week. Up next, it's review time. We're going to start with Manifest. Spoiler filled next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Melissa Rockford from Manifest, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy you got to hear me talk to Melissa Roxburgh and J.R. Ramirez last week. This week, it's my spoiler-filled review of Manifest from NBC. If you haven't seen it yet, basically the gist is, is passengers aboard Montego Air Flight 828 to New York kind of experience some turbulence on a flight only to land and find out that they've been presumed dead and missing for five years, even though for them, it seems instantaneous. Now, this is a plain full of people, but it really has a deep impact on the Stone family, and that's who we're getting to kind of focus on, because some of them got on the plane, and some of them didn't. I should stress once again, just in case you fast-forwarded, this is going to be a spoiler-filled review. I will not go through every plot point for you, but there will definitely be spoilers involved here for the pilot of Manifest, so if you haven't seen it yet, there is your fair warning. Now, the Stone family, of course, Michaela, who is played by Melissa Roxburgh, and her brother Ben, who's played by Josh Dallas, they get affected by this because Ben decides to stay back with his son Cal, who's played by Jack Messina, who is suffering from an illness. He also has a daughter named Olive, who went back, instead of taking that later flight, went on the earlier flight with her mother, Grace, who's played by Athena Carcanis. Now, you can imagine the split family dynamic there and how that sort of plays out once they do land, and that is a very real and emotional part of the show. You also have J.R. Ramirez, who plays Jared, who was kind of the almost fiancé for Michaela. We talked about that in the interviews last week. I mean, last time he saw Michaela, there was kind of a proposal that was kind of left hanging out there, and you can only imagine how... That ended up happening five years later because we find out that he's engaged to someone else and married. And it's just, it's not, and it was her best friend too, by the way, just in case you're wondering. So that, you know, kind of sticks the knife a little bit deeper. But before I get into the meat of the story here, I just think about it for a second. A lot of things happen. And imagine how things would be if you missed out on five years of your life. Like me personally, my son is four. So I can only imagine if I return to find out that I have a four-year-old son or even a five-year-old son, you know, not knowing that that my wife would have been pregnant and she would have had our, our, our child. And that would have been, I mean, I can't even imagine that. And this show really gets into that. It's kind of billed as this mystery and this sci-fi mystery, and it really is, but at the same time, it really gets into the deep emotions of what this might really be like, and that's a huge part of this story. And there's emotional, a lot of emotional stuff 
that needs to be dealt with right away, like like the 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 matriarch of the Stone family, uh, Michaela's mother and and Ben's mother dies while they're gone. So that's something that needs to be dealt with right away, and and everything that's going on with Michaela and Jared, and then also the fact that Michaela was accused of murder before she left. She you know she someone had died in the same car that she was in too. So there was a lot going on for her, and then she has a struggle of you know. Everybody seems to be happy to be back. Why should I feel happy to be back? I've got nothing sort of thing. So she's got to deal with that. And then how about this? Apparently, we have Jared is not the only one that moved on. We get to see text messages that Olive is having, excuse me, that Grace is having with somebody. So she needs to decide, you know, I've got my 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 guy that I've been with here and now my husband's back. I thought he was dead. What do you do with that? So that's something that is not necessarily being dealt with now, but that's one we're going to be dealt with and we're going to be dealing with down the line. So one of the great things about this show is that it's not just having to lean on this mystery aspect. There are some real things going on here, and the performances from the actors are really bringing that out and making you care about multiple stories here, which I think is really interesting, and it does kind of intertwine in this first episode but not a ton, not to the point where you're like, okay, all of these passengers are connected and they're starting to randomly all find each themselves in each other's lives. So while there is some crossover, it's not enough to make you go, okay, what's really going on here? But there is also a mystery on top of the mystery, and that's the voices that are being heard. You hear Michaela hearing set them free and slow down, and of course she saves the kid from being hit by the bus. And then apparently Ben's hearing the same thing, the whole set them free thing. And it turns out the case that Jared was working for these missing kids. Michaela just kind of gets led right to them and sets them free. I thought that was really good, though, because they make you think it was the dogs and then it wasn't. I thought that that was really, really brilliant because I was happy when she saved the dogs because I'm a dog person. And I'm like, yeah, set them free. They shouldn't be sitting there behind a fence, you know, just kind of caged up. Yeah, set them free. Absolutely. Let them live their lives kind of thing. And then you find that it wasn't about that at all. And then apparently, I guess the dogs are going to be free now because the dude was arrested. But at the same time, you realize that there was more to it than that. And that's the show telling you automatically not everything's going to be as it seemed, but not in a weird way. This is where the sh- this is another place where I thought the show deviates from Lost. Was that Lost was this intertwined, really complicated set of mystery elements. Whereas this isn't as complicated, but not to the point of of being of being too simple. You know what I mean? It's it's that okay, we have a mystery here, but we're not gonna get too convoluted in it. And make it so you get to the point where you go, all right, I don't, I don't know what the hell's going on here, and I can't follow this, so I'm just out. This show keeps you hanging on to every little element of its mystery, and I felt myself, you know, kind of getting into that. I'm like, okay, so we have. The, I thought this is what this meant, but I guess it wasn't what it meant. And what's going on here? And the show just felt so real and personal. On top of that, that I there was so much going on. That there were no wasted moments in this show. And in a show like this that le- that you think leans heavy on its mystery, the way the writers put this together was that, okay, we're not just going to make the mystery the main part of the story and that's it. We're going to make you care about these characters and these families and these real moments. And that's going to be part of it as well. So when we're not focusing on the mystery, there's still going to be plenty for you to latch on to here. So they didn't have to lean heavy on that for this to be a good show. I I think that, you know, one probably shouldn't exist without the other here, but it's the beauty part of how they blended that together that I think makes Manifest work so well. We also get to see how things kind of converge at the end, though, and how the passengers do all come together because we do get to see them converge at the end. And lost in all of this, it seems like, is the investigation of what happened to the plane. We get little bits and pieces of them trying to figure things out and how everything seems normal, that you know it can't be. And then you're thinking to yourself as a viewer, you're like, okay, well, eventually they'll find something on the plane. Oh, the plane just exploded. So then what do you do, right? That's the thing. 
What do you do now that the plane has exploded? You're not going to get anything out of that now, are you? So it's almost like the mystery itself doesn't want to be solved. And therein lies the really, really interesting part about this. Because the theories are out there as well. Well, was this aliens? Is this a government conspiracy type of deal? What's really, really going on? This, to me, makes me lean a little bit more towards government conspiracy or some sort of conspiracy. But I, it's, to me, the way this show is being presented and the twists and turns that are happening here and the kind of sleight of hand of the whole set them free thing that happened, it's almost like they want you to believe that it's some sort of government conspiracy thing, right? And I think that that rug's going to yanked out from under us eventually. I don't know if it'll be quick, but I think that's what... It's like, here's what we want you to think, but once again, we're going to yank that rug out from under you. I don't think it's aliens either. I'm not sure what it is at this point. I think venturing a guess based on the information that we have is not something that we can do. But I will say that I, I definitely felt attached to these characters. I definitely understand why this was one of NBC's biggest premieres since the premiere of This Is Us and actually retained a lot of its on. You know, you put a show like this on after something like The Voice that, you know, everybody's going to watch, and then you hope that it kind of hangs on to that audience, and Manifest did that more than its predecessors. So that alone should tell you that there's a lot of interest here, and this is a show that's not just for sci-fi fans. It's not just for people who like family drama. This is one of these shows that draws those genres together, and one thing that I've always said is, is you need the general interest person to be interested in your thing to have huge success. Whether you're talking about superheroes, comic book properties, sci-fi, whatever. So this is one of those shows that if you've got someone in your family that loves family drama that's not that into sci-fi, and you're someone that's into sci-fi and not so much into family drama, this is one where you sit on the couch together and you go, you know what, there's a little bit of something for everybody here. So we're happy. But then I don't feel like you, as a sci-fi fan, you're going at the family drama aspect and going, oh, I can't wait till this is over. Let's get back to the mystery. I didn't feel that way at all. And I don't think it'll be vice versa either because these the mystery itself isn't too out there and complicated for the non-sci-fi fan to go, okay, this is stupid sort of thing. So I think Manifest has found almost a perfect mix here and I can't wait to see how this continues to unwrap itself. Because I think that this is going to be a show we're going to be talking about for a while. That's going to do it for my spoiler field review of Manifest on NBC. Make sure you're watching it. Mark it down for every Monday night at 10 o'clock Eastern. Up next, we are not done. We're going to head to Tuesday in my spoiler field review of the season two premiere of The Gifted. Next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Kobe Bell from The Gifted on Fox, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Loving the fact that we've got premieres going fast and furious. So, yep, let's do another spoiler-filled review, this time of the Season 2 premiere of The Gifted on Fox. And this was all about Baby Polaris at this point, really. Well, not all about, but that was a very, very major point of this. And then we've got the six-month time jump that we're dealing with with the events from the finale. So they wouldn't talk about the time jump in San, Di- in San Diego. Now we know that it's been six months. And that also means that the Strucker family has been looking for Andy for those six months as well. So we have to keep that in mind. But I want to start off with the, the, in the inner circle and the Hellfire Club and how that all started out. Now, keep in mind, again, spoilers from this point out. But you get to see Reva in all of her glory right away in this episode, and she basically, when the Hellfire Club said, hey, you did this without the permission of the Inner Circle, meaning the events of the finale, and everything that happened at Sentinel Services, and she went, yeah, I did it, but I feel like I should be, you know, asking for forgiveness more than asking for permission, and they weren't too thrilled, so she used her power, and then the Frost Triplets took care of the rest, and they basically wiped out the entire Hellfire Club. So now the Inner Circle is literally... Them. They are the inner circle. And then you see the interactions between Lorna and Reva. And while Reva genuinely thinks Polaris is the it girl of all mutants, right? She is the woman that they need to get done what they need to get done. You're starting to see, even in this first episode, that Lorna kind of has mixed feelings about whether or not 
she made the right choice. And, and, you know, part of that is because of the baby. And part of that is she's seeing just how vicious Reva is. And even the Frost tri- triplets, pretty vicious as well, right? But they love her and they love Andy as well. And that was one of the interesting things about this episode, I thought. Now, granted, they, you know, kind of ran together in the underground and everything like that. But the, the friendship that has developed between Lorna and Andy... I think it's been really, really interesting. I like exploring that dynamic and that relationship. We didn't really get a whole lot of that in season one. And now it's almost like they feel like they have each other. And and Andy, even paraphr- to pra- paraphrase him, said something along those lines. Like, look, you, we're your family now. I'm your family now. And Lorna's starting, I think, to warm up to that. And that becomes very important later on in the episode when she's getting ready to have the baby and says, look, I know Reva's going to choose me over the baby you need to protect my baby. And you see him step up when she's getting ready to have the baby and things are going south. So I thought that that was a very interesting relationship to explore. Now, if you move over to the mutant underground side, obviously you know that Marco's not doing very well right now. What is also interesting, though, is that Thunderbird and Blink now are officially together. That is a couple. Start thinking of your couple names now. I don't know if you've got it right off the top of your head. I'm going to get your suggestions at down and nerdy seven, five, seven for the blink and Thunderbird combination couple name. I was thinking Thunderblink, maybe just throwing it out there. Maybe that's too obvious. If you've got something better, let me know, but it's cool that they're together. But the, really the, the most interesting part of this for me was the Strucker family and basically how they are just not dealing with Andy, not being there at all very well. Now you've got, nobody's really telling anybody anything. You've got stuff that's going on with Kate, and Kate is off the friggin' rails at this point. She is just not thinking clearly. And, I mean, she's a mom. You get that. She's Her son is missing for six months. She's treating it like he's been kidnapped, which is very, very interesting. It's almost like she can't come to terms with the fact that he's left. And then you've got Reed, who's doing his thing for the underground and... You know, trying to keep it together, but it looks like his powers are manifesting. So we're starting to see that already, which I didn't expect in the first episode, by the way. And then you've got Lauren out there in the field trying to do good as well. And she's stressed out because Sentinel Services has cranked it up to 11 at this point. They're talking about how many raids there have been in just a month. And yeah, they're saving some, but they're not able to save everybody. And things are crazier than ever. For the Mutant Underground right now. But you just see the cracks in the Strucker family. Really, really start to come through. And then you see Kate kind of go with Marcos. To try and get information on the Inner Circle. Obviously Marcos wants to find Lorna. And she wants to find her son. That goes south a little bit. Kate gets hurt. And then it just seems like the whole team. The whole system is breaking down at this point. Not to mention they just rescued this group of mutants. And this one girl is looking for her sister. And they can't find her. And. It just seems there's chaos and pandemonium throughout the entire episode for the Mutant Underground, other than a couple of nice moments between Thunderbird and Blink. And again, it's just really nice to see them together. I was kind of, I was really hoping those two crazy kids would get together sort of thing. So, but we don't really get to see any convergence between the groups, but when you have the birth of Lorna's baby and they, they actually have to scout out just the right place to do this, which I thought was really funny. It's like, this is the only place you ever actually able to have your baby because it won't collapse under all the pressure. And then you see she's having contractions and the, the all the lights and stuff are going crazy. Her powers are going haywire. And that's when Marcos and the group goes, hey, something's wrong. And they realize that it's her power, so she's got to be nearby. And they're rushing to try and get to her. And things are going really, really wrong with the birth. And you see, you know, Reva's getting antsy because the doctor says, hey, she might not survive this. So then here you think, all right, here we go. It's a throwdown within the inner circle, right? And Andy's stepping in. He's like, no, I want to know exactly what you're going to do because if you're going to hurt this baby, that's not happening. Which was really cool to see him step up. He's, he's never really been shy about stepping up before. But this was really sticking his neck out. Because, you know, you're going up against the boss and she's kind of not very nice. You know, they, they know what she's done and everybody's a little leery of, it, leery of it. So it was really interesting to see him step up and I really, really loved that. But then when you, you see what uh, one of the Frost triplets does to kind of show her what they want their future to be. And that calms her down enough for her to be able to get through it. 
You see the beautiful baby being brought into the world, but then you've got the other side of that, the mutant underground, right? When the entire power grid goes down, that's how they're trying to tra- track her down. And you see, we they don't know if she's dead or not at this point. Nobody knows what's going on. Thunderbird's tracking powers aren't really working. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on in this episode. And the rise and fall of emotions in this was pretty, pretty heavy for a first episode. And we haven't even really gotten to what's going on with Sentinel services or anything like that. So, I mean, I just think that the accelerator is going to be slammed to the floor on this entire season of The Gifted. And it's just not going to let up, man. It's, this is going to be off to the races for the entire time. And things have barely even started between the Inner Circle and the Mutant Underground. And I really, really wonder how long it's going to take for Lorna and Andy's to go, okay, I think we might want out. Or are we going to see Lauren, who had that dream and she saw her brother? Maybe they've got an even deeper connection than we thought. So is she going to eventually drift over to that side, which is something they teased when I did talk to them in San Diego. So very, very interesting stuff forward for The Gifted. I still love this show. I'm not sure I could love it anymore. Definitely appointment viewing. Now that it's moved to Tuesday, too, I like it on Tuesday. That's another thing that I love that they did. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Season 2 premiere of The Gifted. Up next, there's some pretty good nerd news to get to, including a couple trailers. We'll kick it off with that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Sarah Desjardins from Impulse, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yet another reason that space travel might not be for you. We're going to let you know because it's time for nerd news. And the first trailer I want to talk about is the most recent one that dropped, of course, the X-Men Dark Phoenix trailer that will be in theaters Valentine's Day 2019. So, yes, honey, let's go spend Valentine's Day with our favorite group of mutants. And, you know, honestly, you kind of, if you're a comic book fan, you know the Dark Phoenix story already, but you see that 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 Jean Grey gets injured or at least, you know, gets hurt when they're on a mission in space and she comes back and now she can't control her powers and she's becoming more unstable. So you, you kind of know what's going on there. But, I mean, this trailer for me, and I don't want to go through every little detail, but it was one of the biggest yawn-fest trailers I think that you could you could put out there. First of all, you know you're painting... You know, Professor X is a douche who can't really do anything right, which they've really kind of done that throughout a bunch of these movies. And then you've got, you know, Michael Fassbender and, and, and Magneto kind of pointing that out like, hey, you know, you just you keep not doing the right thing. And, and maybe that's why they're doing it. Maybe they're trying to fuel that. But then you've got all of a sudden now you've got Cyclops and, and Jean Grey and, they, and suddenly their relationship is so rock solid. When, when did that just suddenly happen? Because it doesn't seem like they really built that up. Maybe they'll build it up in the beginning of this movie, but I'm not really sure there's a whole lot of time for that, right? I mean, maybe there was a little bit of a little bit of that in Apocalypse, from what I remember. I'm trying to actually forget Apocalypse, so so forgive me if I'm wrong there. But it just seems like that's kind of thrown together, and that's how this really feels. It feels thrown together. And, that, I mean, basically... The whole trailer is, hey, there's Sophie Turner and she's pissed. That's kind of where we're at with Dark Phoenix. It just doesn't feel, and it just feels like everybody's just kind of there. And I know it's a first trailer and things could certainly look better, but this certainly didn't pump me up for this movie. I didn't see this trailer and go, man, all right, Dark Phoenix. We're going to do much better than we did with Apocalypse and this thing's going to be great. And yeah, maybe they got the costumes right. Maybe they've got, maybe that's a step in the right direction. That's it. And that, to me, honestly, and be mad at me for this if you want, that doesn't even really matter to me. I'd rather get a really good storyline, and I'm sure that Sophie Turner's going to do great. I have no doubt about that. She's very talented. And it's not like there isn't talent in this cast. What I'm saying is, is that you're, you're giving me nothing to get me excited about this movie in the first trailer. And maybe me complaining about getting too much in trailers, maybe that's what they're doing. Maybe they're just giving us nothing, and then we're going to get all the content in the actual movie itself. Maybe that's what's happening here, and I really hope it is, because as far as this trailer goes, didn't really give me any excitement. The exact opposite feeling 
is what I had when I saw the new Bumblebee trailer. And again, I'm not going to go into every detail of it, but then you saw Optimus Prime, and it was the classic look. Then you see Soundwave, and it's the classic look, and you're going, wait a second, are we finally understanding what we're supposed to be doing here? Because it seems like somebody's starting to understand and starting to get it. This was one trailer that completely changed my feelings about this movie from the first trailers that I saw, because the first few trailers gave me no indication that this was going to be any different than any other Transformers movie. And now, just seeing the focus on the Transformers themselves and the Decepticons and the Autobots and the battle there and how Bumblebee is the central figure of this movie, obviously because his name is in the title, but just how everything else seems to be falling in line. And even if it's for a shining moment of seeing Optimus Prime, and Soundwave and some of these other characters. Even if it's for a moment, you're at least telling me that you you get it. You understand. And you really, really hope that they're going to go back to the roots of these movies. And it seems like they're at least listening to what fans were saying. And maybe we're going to get that. I do like the theory, though, by the way, and I've seen this in a couple places, that John Cena's character in this is a member of G.I. Joe, and that's how they're going to connect these movies. I could see that. I could absolutely see that. Whoever came up with that theory, bravo, because I could see that happening exactly, and then all of a sudden, a universe is born, and who would have thought you'd be doing that in the Bumblebee movie? Just thought I'd point that out. So I felt the exact opposite way about the Bumblebee movie trailer, Bumblebee movie out Christmas this year, by the way, than I did about Dark Phoenix. Bumblebee finally gets the trailer right and gets me excited for it. Hopefully, X-Men can write the ship on their next trailer as well. Really quickly, we have casting for Birds of Prey. According to Variety, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is going to be playing Huntress. You might remember her from Fargo and 10 Cloverfield Lane. And then Journey Sumlet Bell, I'm sorry if I butchered your name, from True Blood and Underground, is going to be playing Black Canary. We also get a release date, which is going to be February 7th, 2020. I'm going to start out with a little bit of a story that might seem like it has nothing to do with anything, but I promise it will circle back. I was at Target the other day with my wife. Don't glaze over your eyes. I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. I was there with my wife. And she was going to get shampoo, stuff for her hair, and stuff like that. She's got a nice little collection of shampoos at home. Don't ask me why. <laughs> you know, hey, hey, women like to have a lot of shampoo, apparently. But I digress. So we turn the corner, and I see literally the back wall of the of the of three aisles. You know, they have, they have those back shelves all the way at the back where the aisles are. The entire back wall for three aisles over was all. Hair dye, hair dyeing products, hair coloring, bleaching, whatever you want to call it, it was there. And why am I telling you this story? Because everybody that's bitching and complaining that Black Canary has blonde hair and Journey Somlet Bell doesn't, please go to your local department store and look how much look at how much stuff is available. For women to color their hair. Also, it's called a wig. That is also an option. There's hair extensions that are an option. There are a million different ways you can get her hair color right. And I'm going to also say this that I've said a thousand times on this show before. I don't care if her hair colors black, brown, blonde, purple, red, whatever. As long as she knocks it out of the park... When this movie actually hits theaters and we get to see it, that is all I really care about. Do I want these characters to look the way I remember them in the comics? Of course I do. We all do. But at the same time, it's hair color. It doesn't really matter that much, does it? Which suit do you want her to be in? You didn't really complain in Arrow. When they changed the suit, maybe some of you did because, you know, there's some fans that just cannot like Arrow for what it is in the DC TV universe. All right, I understand that much. But you've got to relax and understand that a performance matters more than what someone's wearing or what the color of their hair is, okay? It really, really does. And I mean, you've got 
two legit actresses that are that fans are very very excited about. If you want to be upset about Harley Quinn being in this movie and not Batgirl, I'm going to give you that. I totally agree with you on that. Actually, if there's no Batgirl or Oracle, to me that's a problem. I think you've got to find out a way to, a way to explain that. And I talked about that when we talked about who the director was going to be for this movie. Right now, I'm trusting the process as far as that goes. But if this movie ends up being bad, or if Journey ends up being bad, then you can complain about everything else. Because then that opens the door. If they cast her and she's terrible, then that opens the door for your criticism and you you have your right to it. But for now, we have to see how this plays out because they chose her for a reason. If she knocks it out of the park, then you've got to give credit for that no matter what the color of her hair is. Okay, so that is not a legitimate excuse. And I mean, again, I am all for best person for the job. I don't care what the circumstances are. If someone is the right person for the right part, right actor, right actress wins as far as I'm concerned. If that's what we're doing, I don't care about anything else. As long as the right person gets the job that will do it well and give me a good movie or TV show to watch, it's all I care about. Now, I'm sure that video game fans are very, very excited about the fact that Sony is finally... Finally, your pleas have been answered. They're going to be allowing crossplay. Now, Fortnite is the first game. It's in the open beta right now. And the reason for this, they're saying it wasn't anything to do with technology or anything like that. In their blog and in statements that they've released to certain press outlets, they said that this was a, quote, policy change. And this is where I'm going to have to go off because we knew about this for years and it just seems like nobody wants to admit it, and that's Sony has turned their nose up at the video game industry for a long, long time. They've been sitting there on that perch high on the hill. They're the kings. They can do no wrong, right? Because no matter what we do, we've got the best games. You're going to play them on our system because we've got the best system as well. Everything about what we're doing is the best, and part of that is because the competition just hasn't stepped up. Let's face it, in recent years, the competition just hasn't stepped up, except for E3 this year, where I think Sony took a step back. And I think that that was Sony, all Sony's presentation at E3 was not good. You remember me talking about that. And part of that to me was like, they're thinking, okay, we've got Spider-Man. We know what Spider-Man's going to do. So we already know we're going to have a good year. Why do we have to give this knockout presentation? We're also going to have Last of Us 2. We're going to throw all this stuff at you, and our games are going to be so good, it doesn't matter what we do because you're going to be playing on PlayStation anyway. And look at their motto. Games play better on PlayStation. I know on PS4. I know I'm paraphrasing that. That's not exactly it, but that's the gist, right? And you should be confident in your product. But this is confidence to the point of arrogance. Sony really thought that this was just going to go away. That you as gamers would eventually shut your mouths, be happy with what you have, and you would just go about continuing to play your games on your PlayStation without consequence at all. Well, when it didn't look, when it looked like that finally wasn't going to go away, Sony decided to make their, and this is their, these are their words, policy change that they were going to allow this. Now, there's no word on other games to say it will be. It won't just be Fortnite. There will be cross-play on other games as well. It doesn't look like Fallout 76 is going to be one of those games, according to a recent report. But that is you know, very, very early, early stages, so I'm not ready to call that gospel just yet. But this is not necessarily something that should be celebrated. You should start to understand now how Sony is viewing you as the consumer. And this is my opinion, and my opinion alone. And... I'm not using anything else to base this on other than my opinion. I've not talked to anybody at Sony. This is just how I feel about what I'm seeing from them. They think that no matter what they do, you are going to go to them because they are the best and you're going to be grateful for what you get kind of thing. Well, that's not necessarily how things are going to go, is it? Because Sony is now finally seeing that, yes, while your games while your games do matter and you think your content is king... Guess what? There are other options. And yes, you do have some great exclusives, but that does not mean that does not mean that there are no options to go elsewhere. And yes, you do have Spider-Man, but there's some pretty great games 
for other systems as well. And I'm not an advocate of any specific system, but it's not like you aren't going to get great games. And it's not like there aren't plenty of games that are available for all systems. So if I'm just, it's just a warning to Sony. Be careful what you wish for because you just might get it and you just might find yourself in second or third place if you're not careful. And this is also something, by the way, that we should look at for microtransactions and things of that nature because look what's going on with Devil May Cry 5. Now they're saying, well, you know, you could just basically pay your way to the top. You want these upgrades sooner in the game? You could buy these orbs and get them quicker. Okay, so you don't actually have to go through the formality of playing the game. Thanks. So as long as we spend double or whatever, however much it's going to be, I don't know how much it's going to be. For your game, as long as we're spending more money, you can get through it faster and everybody will be happy. No, if you start saying no to these things or start making enough noise, this stuff's going to go away. Look at at what's happened to Sony. Granted, it took a while. But if you stop making these microtransactions and buying these things and consuming this product, it will go away. And this is a perfect example of that right there. So just keep that in mind. Not necessarily specific for Devil May Cry 5, but for games in general. If you want these microtransactions to go away, if you really hate them, keep this in mind. Another big gaming story that hit, of course, is the closing of Telltale Studios. They're going to be running on a skeleton crew. They laid off about 250 workers, but now they've been hit by a class for a class action suit from the former employees saying that recent layoffs violated federal and state Warren laws. Go ahead and look that up. Google it if you don't know what that is. And Vernie Roberts is actually going to be the one that's representing his fellow workers. And he's saying, and again, I'm paraphrasing here, they were fired without cause and without advance written notice that is required by those Warren laws. Now, if you look up the Warren Act, I mean, certainly everything that everything in the complaint here certainly seems to fall within those parameters. And it seems like this might be a legitimate lawsuit. I'm not saying it wasn't already, but if you look it up and you start doing a little bit of research, it really, really makes sense that this lawsuit was filed. And it seems legitimate. And you have to you you have to feel for these employees from Telltale that have been laid off. And luckily a lot of the other game developer game game developers have been reaching out. And I think that, you know, hopefully the vast majority of these employees will find jobs. But then you get these stories about how you, you Telltale saying, you know, wait, wait, we might be able to finish the Walking Dead game. And you're like, wait, did wait a minute. So basically what you're saying is, is that you don't want to put the focus on taking care of these employees that you let go. No, no, no. You want to finish this game because you want to scrape up the last little bit of cash that you might have had. Now, I was a fan of the Telltale games. I, I love what they were doing. But then you see how they treated their employees at the end, and it just wasn't good. I realize that sometimes the money's just not there, and you've got to cut your losses and go. I'm not saying that you need to try and hemorrhage money forever. But you didn't even give your employees a chance. You really, really didn't. You could have let people know or backed off on hours or something like that or just not even allowed overtime. You can extend release dates for your games. Take care of your people somehow, some way. And then that way, when something like this happens, you don't end up with lawsuits and employees that are saying that they were worked to the bone and, and were unappreciated. You've got to be smarter about things like this. And how dare you come out and even try to focus on the fact that you're going to be finishing a, a Walking Dead game. That may or may not happen at this point. And they'd be hiring outside people for this, it looks like. You wouldn't even let your employees stay, or at least some of them stay, to finish this thing? Are you kidding me? You couldn't have done this first and then done these layoffs or saying, yeah, we're going to lay these people off after this happens. Then at least you give them the option to leave if they don't want to finish this out or you give them enough money and time to look for something else. They're going to extend their health coverage 30 days, it looks like, according to various reports. Kotaku was one of them. So that's something, I guess. But at the same time, it just seems like it's it's dirty pool, man. I don't like what happened here. And I'll be very interested to see what happens with this lawsuit? I don't like talking about legal matters, but this one, I'd be I'd be worried if I was telltale anybody involved there. A few little quick hits. I got to tell you, I'm loving the look of the Joker from the Joaquin Phoenix. 
solo Joker movie. I love the evolution. I like the Cesar Romero type of, you know, you got the coat and the makeup. This is still very, very early on. Again, I don't think this is a final reveal by any stretch at all, but I'm loving what I'm seeing so far. And it's creepy and it's amazing. And and I I was not all for this movie when it was first announced. Now I'm really starting to come around. I think this could really, really be awesome. Also, you've got DC TV releasing their poster through Warner Brothers and the CW that Elseworlds will be the subject of the crossover. To me, that doesn't necessarily mean any specific story. Rather, it's pretty much their way of saying, yeah, we can pretty much do whatever we want. And this is a way to explain Batman away. Because if it's Elseworlds, then Batwoman might essentially be Batman in this Elseworld. Think about that for a second. That might explain it away because the question was, okay, how do you not mention Bruce Wayne, Batman in this whole scenario? Maybe he's dead. Maybe he doesn't exist at all. Batwoman is Batman. You saw the bat signal. It didn't look like the regular bat signal did it. No, if anything, it looked a little bit like the Batman Beyond bat signal. Not even going to start that rumor, but I'm just saying Batwoman is probably Batman in this Elseworld. And I'm sure there's a bunch of other stuff that's funky too. So I think that's going to be interesting. And I, I've been jacked for that from the beginning. So I'm not even going to lie. I'm not going to act like this changed that at all. I'm, I'm super excited for the Arrowverse crossover in December. There is one thing that's been pushed back a little bit though. And that's the Hellboy movie with David Harbour. Now going to be coming out in April 12th of 2019. Instead of January according to the Hollywood Reporter. Smart move, gives them more time to market the movie. Looks like we might get a first trailer at New York Comic Con coming up. So I don't know why you would rush this for January anyway. I know it's only September slash October right now, but it just seems like we haven't had anything except for a look at Hellboy. That's all we've got. We've got nothing beyond that really, so why rush it? Now, it is going to be moving right up against Shazam and Robert Downey Jr.'s movie that's going to be coming out around that time as well. So it's going to have some stiff competition, but I think that Hellboy will be able to hold his own in this. And hey, just a better time for us comic book movie fans, right? That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, we're going to be talking some Marvel Rising Secret Warriors. You know we've got the movie coming out on September the 30th. That's this Sunday. We'll talk to Senior Vice President of Family Entertainment for Marvel. That's right. Court Lane is up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey guys, this is Chloe Bennett from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You might remember this guy from our landmark 100th 100th episode. It's been a while, though, since we've had it back on, but when we found out about Marvel Rising Secret Warriors, we knew we had to grab him again. It's Senior Vice President of Animation and Family Entertainment for Marvel and the Executive Producer for Marvel Rising Secret Warriors. That's a lot of titles for Court Lane. How's it going? (laughs) Um, excellent. It's really glad to be talking to you about this project. It's been a long time coming. Well, as I try to catch my breath, Court, I will let you go ahead and answer this for me. Marvel's always done a really good job over the years of shining a spotlight on its younger heroes, mostly with the X-Men, though. So what made now the right time for a project like Marvel Rising? Gosh, oh, so many things. Um, first of all, the feature films have opened up um, greater awareness with kids, but particularly girls. Um, and so that we did a lot of research and we had a lot of conversations. We looked at the box office, we've looked at the consumer products and not that any of those drive what we do from a storytelling perspective, but showed us there's an audience, there's an audience we knew for boys and we've been creating great stories and animation for them, but there's an opportunity with girls, but it, it could also be frankly a, a franchise that boys could enjoy watching and all ages could watch. Um, but we knew that there was a unique demand. One of the things that I really like that you did, especially here with Secret Warriors, is that you didn't necessarily go with the origin stories route. It feels like the introduction to these heroes was very organic and very natural, and, and it didn't really seem like you were really, you know, like you were shoving out the whole "this is just for girls" thing, which I really, really love too. It just everything felt so natural. So, how much of that was because of the shorts themselves, as far as the origins were concerned, or did you really just want everything to happen organically? 
We wanted everything to happen organically. I mean, the truth of the matter is we had a lot of ideas about how to start the story and bring these characters together. And Margaret Scott, our writer, um, presented back to us a pitch where we just sort of meet them one by one. And over time, with that each, each introduction, we learn a bit about them. And then later on, we can learn a little bit more about their backstory. But so that we weren't put in a situation where... Here's a bunch of characters all coming together at the same time, brought together for this reason. Um, because girls, um, even more than boys, very interested in the character arcs of each character. And so servicing each character with that screen time where you get to meet them, you get a taste of their personality, you get a hint of what's happened in their past that have brought them to this moment. And then you get to play that out in story over time. They're so interested in the character arcs, about characters' relationships with each other, developing friendships. Um, and so we we had to lean into that even more than we normally would. Now, your heroes aren't just young, but it's also a very diverse cast of characters as well. How important was it when you were choosing those characters that would be a part of Marvel Rising Secret Warriors? How important was that for you guys? Well, it's important to take it. It's a really good question, but it's important to take a step back that Marvel doesn't really look at it as if we're checking boxes on diversity and, and representing different. Right. And I like that. Yeah. Marvel's perspective is we're telling stories about real characters who live in the real world. And in the real world, there's all kinds of diverse characters with different backgrounds and religions. And, um, and in this case, even with girls, they brought up body types. So, um, so was, to be quite honest, we had characters that we liked, a set of them, and we started having conversations with girls about which ones they were connecting emotionally to. Um, but the, the, the set that we present them was very diverse, and they embraced that the diversity. And, um, and none of that, none of that was a problem for any of them. Um, and we were interested in the conversation about body types and girls dove into that conversation even deeper and, and wanting to see that. And so that, that was the thing that we evolved even more in terms of what we intended was um, presenting different body types. You talked about Margaret Scott, the writer, who, and I love her work, especially the stuff that she's done on Transformers. And what she's done, I think, a lot is help bring tr female Transformers into the forefront of those stories. Did that factor in at all in wanting her to be a part of this project? Well, to be completely honest, we've been working with Margaret a lot. Um, she's been co-story editor on Guardians of the Galaxy for a couple seasons. Um, our process is actually not even that different than the feature film studios that we bring in a couple people and we want their take on it. And if they have a really strong, compelling, fresh pitch, then best idea wins. And that's truly what happened with Marigut here. But we had so much experience with her that we knew that she could tell a strong superhero story with female leads. Um, and, and also, frankly, she brought a lot of personal experience and perspective to each of these characters, mm -hmm. um, which she spoke to very eloquently at San Diego Comic-Con. She talked about the fact that when she was a new young woman living in New York City, she felt very much like Squirrel Girl and Kamala, just sort of like tackling it in the big city. And, um, you know, how and her friend, it sort of was like them against the world. But that she, she also talked about um, the fact that she's a very sort of like by the book, by the rules kind of person, and she can get caught up in doing things a certain way. And the character she most identifies with is Patriot. So with each of these characters, she brought something special in terms of the, the character story she wanted to tell talking to executive producer for marvel rising secret warriors court lane of course marvel rising going to be de debuting for secret warriors on disney xd and disney channel september the 30th at 10 p.m eastern now court i wanted to talk about secret warriors even more for a second because it really focuses a lot on miss marvel and squirrel Girl. Yeah. talk about that relationship a bit and how fun it was to pair those two together especially so I don't know that in superhero storytelling, there has been a significant project that focused on two superhero female best friends. I could be wrong, um, but I don't know that that's the case. And that core story of their friendship really helps you connect to these characters because, you know, every girl... If she doesn't have a best friend, she wants to have a best friend. And it's a way to sort of ground the story in a relationship that you can connect with. And when they have conflict, as friends always do, and when they reunite and work through that, it's really emotionally satisfying. And it sort of gives a reason for all of the big world-saving stuff to have a very sort of relatable kind of thing to it, a personal stakes on top of the epic world-saving stakes. Um, but also in terms of selecting Kamala, uh, as a POV character especially, we understand that Marvel stories work best when the, the lead character is relatable and there's duality in, in terms of their, you know, their 
superhero life and their personal life and the conflict between the two and the sacrifices they have to make. Make I call that the Peter Parker thing. And mm-hmm. um, Kamala has that. She just lives in New Jersey instead of Queens, and she happens to be a girl instead of a boy. And um, because that relatability is such a hook for so many people in terms of storytelling with the Marvel characters and so much that we've done in animation, Kamala was perfect for that. One of the things that I thought you did really, really well in this, in Secret Warriors especially, was anytime you do have a superhero story, there's a larger-than-life aspect to it, but you also yeah. bring a lot of true-to-life. So talk about the balance there when you're putting something together. Where's the balance between larger-than-life with heroes, but also true-to-life as well? You know, it is tough, and there has to be a duality of the characters in terms of being relatable, real people that you can connect with emotionally. And that's unique to Marvel as a franchise as opposed to a lot of big action-adventure franchises that Marvel always tries to deliver on. Um, Not in every story, but I think it's a through line. through comics and pub, you know, and the work in publishing and the feature films and television is that relatability and those that emotional resonance. So being able to deliver that with these characters, especially because they're supposed to be teenagers that are a lot like the audience watching. So um, being able to see Kamala with her mom and at school and to understand some of the characters' past stories and see them connect or fight um, and interact with each other in ways that are just like you and I would as teenagers. It's so important, and and girls especially need that element, which is already very prevalent in Marvel storytelling, need that element even more for them to connect with these characters in an action-adventure story. Now, we're not going to enter spoiler territory here, Court, but I do want to I do okay. want to dance around something a little bit because I think it's important. Okay. There, there was a scene towards the end of the movie that really stood out to me that involved Ms. Marvel and Captain Marvel. I think you probably know which one I'm talking about. So I don't want to spoil it, but I think it sent a very important message right there at the end. So do your best tap dance for us and talk about putting that scene together. Yeah, I mean, I think Kamala... And all of it, Kamala represents all of the characters to some extent, but especially her her sense of wanting to be something big. She wants to be a great Marvel hero, um, and truly, these are the next generation of Marvel heroes. And they sort of aspire to be something sort of far beyond what they see themselves. Captain Marvel especially represents that for them, and particularly for Kamala, and for Captain Marvel to essentially tell her like. Yeah, what I do is great, but you do your best version of you, and that will make you a great hero. Um, and Kamala needed to hear that. And, um, and I think she had actually demonstrated that through the story, and it was just a realization where somebody at that level needed to tell her, you're, you're great, just do the best you that you can. Uh, and that's all that any hero can do. Absolutely. You talked about some of the other characters as well, and I want to talk about Daisy Johnson for a second being a part of the group, yeah. because she's also voiced by Chloe Bennett, who is, of course, yeah. live-action uh, Daisy Johnson as well. So how great was it to be able to have her bring her work from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. over here into the animation and have it be a little bit different as well? Yeah, she loved it. She loved it. She, she will say in interviews and, and talking to press that um, it reminds her of her earliest days um, on, on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because the character is younger and she's a little bit, she's a little less mature um, and there's a brightness to Marvel Rising that she, she enjoys playing. She really is excited about representing these positive, aspirational heroes um, for young female viewers uh, and so she's been thrilled. And, and also, it's just really nice, you know, being a fan of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., that when Quake talks, it's her voice because I want to hear that. Um, but it's nice also, you know, Chloe's talked about how it's nice for her to be able to play a slightly different version of the character. And then when people ask her, they ask her, well, isn't it so different from being in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? She's like, you know what? There are so many scenes where I'm playing against a green screen, <laughs> fighting some villain or monster or ghostwriter or whatever. None of it's on camera in front of me. And she's like, voice acting is not that different. So, um, except she gets to show up in whatever she wants to wear. And it's a short session. And it's actually kind of fun and easy to do. There you go. It makes it a little bit easier for her and, and fun at the same time. I love that. Yeah. So now, anyone who's already seen the trailer court knows that the team appears to be in place. So what can you tease for us about what's coming beyond Marvel Rising Secret Warriors? Or maybe a better question is, what do you hope is coming beyond this? Well, I am not allowed to say anything about what happens next because um, that would spoil um, some 
press opportunities down the road. But what I will say is, what <laughs> well, we don't want to do that. We definitely don't want to do that. Is that I would hope that we could expand the cast. I would hope that uh, we continue to tell these stories about friendship and and personal growth. Um, I I'm so proud to be a part of Marvel Rising. I think representation matters in media. Um, and while we didn't go into this, like I said, trying to check those boxes on diversity. Um, it's so rewarding to know that these characters are appealing to girls and that we can tell stories about different kinds of characters. Um, so just, just to continue doing that and expanding this Marvel Rising mini-universe on its own would be so exciting. And more Ghost, Ri- Ghost, more Ghost Spider at some point? I can't, I'm not allowed to say. Ah, see, I <laughs> thought sorry. I was going to catch you napping there, and I should have no, known better. Should have known better. Well, see for yeah. yourself coming up on Sunday, September the 30th on Disney XD and Disney Channel at 10 p.m. Eastern, Marvel Rising, Secret Warriors, you've got Miss Marvel, Squirrel Girl, Captain Marvel, Daisy Johnson, Patriot, a whole great cast. You're going to love it, and we love talking to this guy as well. It's Court Lane. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Oh, thank you for the great questions. I love it. Thank you. Take care. So great to have Court Lane out on back on the show after so long. And I got to tell you, I've gotten a chance to see Marvel Rising Secret Warriors. It's fun. It's funny. It's entertaining. I mean, it's definitely something that's made for a younger audience. But this is one of the things I wish that Marvel would have done. And now it looks like that Marvel Rising is that initiative that's going to do it. Where you're getting that younger crowd, especially the younger female audience, to start getting interested in these characters and getting interested in comic book culture in general at a young age, and then you just they just move their way right into everything else when they once they become teenagers and into adulthood. You know, you hear the whole thing when you when you have kids to say, you know, start them young. You want them to be fans of something that you love. Start them young, and that's what Marvel's finally doing, and they pick the perfect characters to do it. The cast is really, really good with these characters as well. Marvel Rising Secret Warriors, definitely something you're going to want to check out on Disney XD and Disney Channel Sunday night at 10 o'clock. If the kids aren't up, set your DVR, make sure so they'll be able to watch it multiple times because this is something that could be the start of something huge. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Court Lane and all the folks at Marvel for joining me this week. If you want more about the show, you can go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Also, follow us on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy, and at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.